This is Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. For months, the eyes of the political and legal world have been on Georgia ever since Donald Trump and 18 alleged co-conspirators were indicted in Fulton County under the Georgia version of the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO. Fulton County's prosecutor, Fenny Willis, is aiming to prove that there was collusion to overturn the outcome of the 2020 election. And the past week has seen a dramatic turn in the case as three of Trump's former attorneys have pled guilty in rapid succession. To get a handle on what that might mean, I'm really happy to have back one of America's sharpest legal minds, Barb McQuaid, a professor of law at Michigan Law, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, appointed by President Barack Obama. She was the first woman to serve in her position and well-known as a legal analyst for NBC News, MSNBC. And she's also part of the Sisters-in-Law podcast, featuring Joyce Vance, Jill Wine-Banks, and Kimberly Atkins-Store. Barb, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. It is great to be with you. I am looking down right now because I've had three out of the four of the Sisters-in-Law on my show, and I'm embarrassed to say that while I listen, I haven't subscribed. So with you as my witness, I am hitting the follow button. Oh, love it. Wow. Thank you, Matt. Right, Apple Podcasts. And for all of our Beyond Politics listeners, if you haven't done that for our show, please do. It helps us out. Yes, one more for the sisters-in-law. All right, housekeeping done. We'll get into all of the many angles of this. But first, just from a 30,000-foot view, take us inside your mind as you saw the news of Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesborough, and then yesterday, Jenna Ellis pleading guilty. What was your initial reaction? Oh, I, I was a little surprised, but also thought it is a very good development for the prosecution. You know, once you see one or two defendants plead guilty, this is a common phenomenon where the dominoes start to fall. Uh, and that's because each defendant knows that a defendant who's pleading guilty can testify against them. And so they start to think, you know, not only do I want to get a deal on the earlier side, which tends to be better than waiting, but now that that person's going to testify against me, I'm really cooked. So I better get on board. And so I think it's likely that we have not seen the last of these, that when you see the guilty pleas coming like this, it's sort of like dominoes, you know, lined up. Once you t tip one over, they all sort of knock down the next one. Is that how you as a prosecutor and you would expect a smart prosecutor to go about going after a RICO case? You, you flip the henchman and you go after the top gal or guy. Yeah, that is a very common tactic of prosecutors. And it is often the reason that a prosecutor like Fannie Willis might charge a large criminal enterprise. You know, Jack Smith took a very different approach in charging just Donald Trump, I think, hoping to streamline the case and get it to trial quickly. But the Fannie Willis method is a, probably a more common one, which is charge everybody and then approach the lower level offenders, see if you can flip them, secure their testimony, and then leverage that testimony to flip the next one up the chain and kind of work your way up the chain. The one thing here that caused her to go a little bit out of order, I think, is the fact that Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell, who are two Trump lawyers, demanded their speedy trial rights. And so they were to have a trial starting this week. And I think for that reason, they had to jump a few links in the chain to get to them just because otherwise they were going to trial this week. But, you know, that really shakes things loose, right? I think we saw Jenna Ellis enter a guilty plea, no doubt in response to their guilty pleas, knowing that they could probably testify against them. You know, Sidney Powell and Janet Ellis in particular were part of what Trump referred to as the elite strike force that were going to pursue claims of election fraud. And so it, with Sidney Powell's cooperation, I think Janet Ellis's cooperation became inevitable. And now you have to wonder about Rudy Giuliani, who is also part of that group. 
Oh, yes. You have to worry about Rudy Giuliani. A, a lot of us are very worried about Rudy Giuliani and what's happened to his brain. And I, I, I do love the elite strike force. It has this like Fox Force 5 energy to it. It's all so silly. But that's an interesting insight that we saw this bail bondsman be the first to plead guilty. And you would think, okay, if you're going up sort of the rungs of the ladder of importance to the scheme, that makes sense as a starting point. You might think that you'd get to Sidney Powell later, but that that's interesting that it went a little bit out of order. Just as a, as a point of curiosity, how do you as a prosecutor go about the process of flipping defendants from, from what we've seen in the case, what pressure do you think might have been brought to bear here? There's been speculation in the New York times that the financial burden on the defendants may have played a role because, you know, you've got to be in Georgia for a long trial. That's, that's a financial expense. There's been speculation that the ongoing ability to hold on to your legal license might have been a powerful motivator in the cases of these attorneys. And is this a situation where you might offer to defense counsel, hey, look, get in now, because the longer you go, the worse the offer is going to get for your client. Yes. So I, I don't think it's appropriate to, you know, try to pressure them financially. I mean, that's a reality, but I don't think prosecutors would use that as a point of, of pressure. But I do think that it is common to say, first one in the door gets the best deal. And as time goes mm. on, they're going to get worse. And we've already seen that, right? The first two got misdemeanors. Scott Hall and then Sidney Powell, the next two had to plead guilty to felonies. They're still not uh, going to get prison time, but the deal got a little bit worse. And I would expect that as time goes on, they will all get a little bit worse. And so there is definitely a message out there that now is the time to get on board to get a favorable deal. And you never know exactly how this happened. It may be that the defense lawyers themselves approached the prosecution and said, if my client were to enter a guilty plea, what, what can you do for them? What's the best deal you can offer? And, you know, maybe they work this out. The other thing that's useful to know, I think, is that prosecutors typically do not make any offer until after they've had a preview of the evidence that the defendant can provide. So you've heard that these defendants have provided what's known as a proffer and that they've been video recorded. And so that is they will actually sit down with the prosecutor. They'll get a temporary grant of immunity for what they say there. You know, we're not going to use this stuff against you. We're just going to use this to evaluate the value of your testimony. And we want you to answer some questions. And then they'll you know, tell us all that you did. Tell us what you can tell us about Rudy Giuliani, about Donald Trump, et cetera. And only upon being satisfied that 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 is what's there's a term of art, substantial assistance in the conviction of others. Do they offer a plea deal? So what that says to me is the prosecution was getting something they believe to be quite valuable in exchange for these guilty pleas. And so some of that is the early plea, but some of that is also the substance of the testimony these defendants can provide. It did sound like that was one of the tea leaves that the sisters-in-law were reading into these developments. This was prior to the Jenna Ellis plea deal, but post Chesborough and post Powell, it's so hard to keep track of all of these figures here. I believe it was uh, your colleague, Kimberly Atkins Store, who was saying, look, they had to, the goods that they gave up must have been substantial here for this deal to go forward. And of course, this is speculation because we don't know, but there, there's certainly a suggestion that Fonnie Willis has ended up with something very powerful in her toolkit as part of this prosecution here. The other takeaways that I got from, by the way, delightfully titled last episode. Oh, I have such envy for you guys. Cheese and Kraken. I, I you can't outdo that. Chef's kiss. 
Yeah, um, that was that was Kimberly Atkins' story. She came up with that one. And Bravo, I think it's a, 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 an excellent name. Well, you can tell that she's a, a writer. I first encountered her as a as a reporter for the Boston Herald. I don't know about a decade ago, and ooh, sharp. All right. So what the the takeaways seem to be from from the group that these sentences applied to Powell and Chesbro were on the lenient side. They they have not been hit with the book, and it, it was, there was an interesting insight. It might it might have been I'm I'm not sure who who was the speaker on this that while Sidney Powell has been sort of the the public face and clownishly so at at certain points over the last couple of years the plea deal for Chesbro might have been more legally significant because he was the architect what do you make of that analysis yes I I do agree with that you know I think because Sidney Powell was the one who talked about release the Kraken and was out there making these outrageous statements on air about voting machines and you know conspiracies with Italy and Venezuela and all these things, that, that she was the more high profile. But Chesbro, as you say, is the architect of the fake elector scheme. He was a lawyer. He's, you know, by all accounts, a very good lawyer, Harvard-educated lawyer who came up with this theory, but wrote some memos that said, you know, I think the likelihood of this theory actually prevailing will, will fail is very low, but it will be good for us politically. It will buy us time. It will control the public narrative. And and so those admissions that they knew that this was not a legitimate good faith claim of election fraud, but was instead a strategy to unlawfully hold on to office, I think could be really powerful testimony against, you know, all the higher ups. This could cause John Eastman to flip, who was a lawyer of of Trump's. It could cause Giuliani to flip, and it could be really incriminating. I don't I would never expect Donald Trump to flip. I don't think it's in his DNA to admit wrongdoing. But I think the testimony of Chesbro at trial against Donald Trump can be really powerful. You just uh, alluded to several aspects of a question that I had in store for you later. Let's just go to it now. I wanted to ask you about the significance of the fact that the people who are taking these deals are attorneys. This is me as a non-attorney trying to read into and follow the legal analysis here. So maybe you can set me right. It, it seems like one of the potential defenses that Trump was going to rely on here was, I was just following the advice of counsel. My lawyers made me do all this. It seems like that Chesborough memo that you just alluded to, where he says outright, hey, as a legal strategy, this does not hold water. This is going to fail, but it's a good political strategy. That kind of blows that up, this idea that this was all just legal strategy. And there's also the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. And it seems like the fact that these attorneys are taking these plea deals and providing evidence would seem to blow all of that up. So that's that's sort of my read on why it matters that these are lawyers doing this. Is there is that right? Is there stuff I might have missed? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I guess I have three reactions to the fact that these are lawyers. Number one, as a lawyer myself, I'm ashamed of them. You know, we, we've previously had to say they are accused or alleged to have done these things. Now that they've pled guilty, they've admitted it. And they did. we can say they did these things. And so as officers of the court who are trained in ethics to serve the public, I think I'm ashamed of them. Number two, the fact that they're pleading guilty, they know how the system works. These are lawyers. They know that the early deals are the best deals and that you need to get in the door. You know, there's that 
organization called Emily's List that provides funding for progressive women candidates in politics. And Emily stands for early money is like yeast because it causes things to rise. And so getting in early has more value than getting in later. Same is true with regard to a plea deal. And so the fact that these lawyers are getting in early, it's because they know how, how this works and they want to get the best deal they can. So that's another significance of the fact that they're lawyers. But the third and most important reason, as you just talked about, is this idea that it can really uh, destroy Donald Trump's ad advice of counsel defense. And so that is a defense that is an affirmative defense by a defendant, which means that they have to bring forward the evidence. They have to say, all that you say about this case may be true, government, but jury should look at, at my my defense. And then the, the defendant has the burden of, of, of showing all this evidence. And what they have to show is that I relied on advice of counsel in good faith. And I did this thing thinking it was lawful. Turns out in retrospect, they were wrong, but I shouldn't be punished for that because I didn't know I was doing something wrong. And you know, criminal law requires mens rea, a guilty mind, a, a criminal intent. You can't accidentally commit a crime. So because of that requirement, the fact that we've got now three lawyers saying, no, you know, this was all, this was all fraud all along. We knew these things were false. There's no good faith here it is, is very important, it, as well as the point you just raised about the attorney-client privilege and the crime fraud exception. I think one other factor that drove the guilty plea for Kenneth Chesbrough is the judge in the case, a few days before the trial was to start on Monday, ruled that the attorney-client privilege would not apply because it was pierced by the crime fraud exception between him and Trump. You know, the judge had reviewed these documents and said, no, I think that I believe by a preponderance of the evidence that a crime or fraud was occurring here, so you do not get the benefit of the attorney-client privilege. This, all these memos are coming into evidence. That may have also contributed to his decision to plead guilty, but I think it is going to do significant damage to his advice of counsel defense. Now, maybe there's some other lawyer who is, he disregarded all these other lawyers, and there was one other lawyer who told him that he should pursue these claims, and that it was reasonable to do so. You know, we've got the White House lawyers, the DOJ lawyers, his campaign lawyers, and now these co-defendant lawyers all saying this was not a good faith effort. I think at some point a jury is going to find it difficult to believe that he relied on the advice of counsel in good faith. I want to put this idea in the parking lot for just a moment because it connects to another legal concept that I promise we will come back to in a minute. But I just want to as you were talking about that and the fact that these attorneys are officers of the court, they have ethics training, they have a responsibility to the legal system, to the court, to behave lawfully and ethically, it reminded me of the Jenna Ellis of all of this. And obviously, you've had less time to digest the Jenna Ellis plea, as have we all, because it just happened. But in, in reading up on it, because I have to admit, I follow this closely, and yet it's it's hard to keep track of all of the figures in this case and all of the attorneys in this case. So I had to go back and remind myself of the fact that Jenna Ellis has already been part of a censure deal with the Colorado Supreme Court six months ago. But there was a disciplinary proceeding in which she admitted to 10 specific misrepresentations that she made among them, her claim to having evidence of a coordinated effort in all of these states to transfer votes from Trump to Biden, to manipulate ballots, to count them in secret, her claim of overwhelming evidence proving that the election was stolen, her claim that the election was stolen and Trump won by a landslide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder what you make of the significance of the fact that Jenna Ellis, an attorney 
for Donald Trump. And by the way, after Powell's plea deal, Trump went on Truth Social and said, oh, she was never my lawyer. <laughs> no, you, you, you on that same platform said she's my lawyer. What do you make of the significance of the fact that Jenna Ellis came late to the party, but she had already admitted in another legal proceeding that she had been lying through her teeth in, in very specific detail? That, that seems to weigh in here to this whole, hey, I was just relying on my lawyers and I knew nothing about this. My state of mind was I totally believed this thing. Yeah, I think there are two things that are significant about that. One is once she made admitted to those things in Colorado for the disciplinary proceeding, it was really impossible for her to defend herself in this case, right? Because she was making those very same representations in the conduct alleged in this case. She traveled with Rudy Giuliani to Michigan and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona and made those representations to the legislatures in those states for the purpose of encouraging them to reconvene their legislatures to cast a, a new slate of electors. So, you know, that, that was always going to doom her case, I think, here. But I think to the larger picture and what it does to others, it, it certainly undermines any claim that they relied on her advice of counsel in a, in a way that was in good faith. And I really think that her guilty plea is ultimately also going to really taint Rudy Giuliani. We'll see whether he's smart enough to get on board with a guilty plea or he's going to hold fast to the end. That is a big question. And just to remind our listeners, Jenna Ellis literally sat next to Rudy Giuliani as he was making these false election claims uh, in front of hearings in state legislatures. I think Michigan was among them, um, yep. your, your, your uh, stomping grounds there. And so, you know, her implication and her plea deal here does seem to me to spell a lot of trouble for Rudy Giuliani. That said, uh, let's return to the parking lot concept that I promised we would circle back to uh, from what you said a few minutes ago. One of the aspects of the case that you have raised before, in, including in statements to the Washington Post and, and other places where you provide legal analysis, is this concept of willful blindness. It, it's mm -hmm. not a defense under the law to deploy the George Costanza line. It's not a lie if you believe it. I'm dating myself for that reference, but that's okay. A lot of Trump's defense, at least publicly, seems to be that he truly believed the lie. And as you pointed out, that is not okay. You, you, can't, you can't deploy that. But I imagine that what Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith may now be looking for here out of the testimony that we will eventually see from Ellis and Chesborough and Powell is that kind of Watergate phrase. What did the president know and when did he know it? Can they give the lie to this to this flimsy defense of no, 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 I really believed it. Or to what extent was the was was President Trump presented with this is not oh, this is hooey. None of this holds water. None of this is real, you know, and even if he he claims that he he believed it, it's a case of willful blindness. He's making himself willfully blind to it. Now, this is me just speculating. But if you were prosecuting this case, is that something that you would be looking for specifically in this testimony is trying to get to this willful blindness question? Yes. In a case like this, it is the prosecution's burden to prove that he had the guilty intent, that he knew he had lost the election. But juries get instructed on something that goes something like this. You know, because you cannot read another person's mind, you may draw 
reasonable inferences based on the totality of the circumstances. All the things the person said or did or knew or heard are, are all relevant for you to decide what was in their, their mind. And then as to willful blindness, the instruction is a person may not ignore a high probability that a fact is true simply by putting his head in the sand. And you may infer that a person did know that a fact was true if there was you know, substantial evidence that the fact was true, even if the defendant himself never admitted it, because that is the concept of willful blindness. You know, it's pouring rain outside, but I really want to go play golf. And I say, oh, the weather's fine. It'll clear up. You know, at some point people say, no, it's, it's storming. It's storming really hard. You can't be willfully blind to that. That's, that's the idea there. And so I think the more you get witnesses who will say, you know, we already had William Barr and the cybersecurity director and Trump campaign lawyers and White House lawyers saying all these things. But now, in addition, you're going to have Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and Kenneth Chesbrough all saying the same thing. The evidence is sounding pretty overwhelming about the, the idea that, of course, Trump had to know, even if he didn't admit that he knew, that he had lost the election. One of the things that we talked about the last time you were on this show is that you can't Part of the Jack Smith case seems to be sort of the obstruction, the the this aspect of like, well, to, to what extent do you believe this this idea that you might have really won the election and, and then that it, it might have been rigged? That's not a defense against some of the specific illegal actions that you took, for example, constructing the false slate of electors or uh, conspiring to illegally get your hands on voting machines, voting data, penetrate voting offices. What was interesting to me about the plea deals for Powell and Chesborough here is that they are admitting to two different faces of kind of like this multi-face crime, two different aspects of the crime. Mm -hmm. Chesborough is admitting to his role in the fake electors scheme. Just to remind people, because I have to remind myself of all the details constantly, this was where there was specific outreach to get people to claim to be electors, to put their names on documents and to confuse Congress and say, oh, we're the rightful electors that, that the state has, you know, through the vote pointed here to go represent the state's interests in the electoral college. What Sidney Powell pled to was a different part of the scheme, which involved penetrating an election office, getting a hand on voting data in Georgia. And that's one of the aspects of a RICO case here is that you don't even need to be aware of what all of the other co-conspirators are doing. There can be these many aspects of the case. What do you what do you read into that? Because it seems like now Fannie Willis has in her hands the goods on different parts of, of the material case here, different overt actions. So even if she can't establish a state of mind for Donald Trump around his belief or non-belief in the lie, she has the goods on some really powerful overt actions that are illegal. Yeah. And, and this is an important part of the scheme because, as you say, there are kind of two ways to commit fraud here. One is knowing that your underlying premise is false, that he won the election. The other is, even if he truly believed he won the election, you still can't engage in illegal tactics. And so tampering with voting machines, 
even if you think you really, really won the election, you can't go tamper with election equipment. That's, you know, that's just illegal. One of the other schemes was intimidating these vote counters, Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman. That's another part of the scheme. It doesn't matter if you really, really thought you won. You still can't coerce people to come in and tell lies. And so, as you point out, having some of these people on the inside is really valuable now with the fake elector scheme. You know, same thing, submitting false documents uh, to the National Archives, to the states, to Congress for the purpose of gumming up the works. You know, that's a crime. Even if you truly believed you won, you just can't do that. So now they've got some people on the inside who will testify about those aspects of the crime as well. Speaking of the submitting to the National Archives, that does begin to bleed into the Jack Smith case, the, the federal case, which does hinge very much on, you know, these aspects of, of submitting these false slates of electors, you know, misleading Congress, misleading the archives. I've heard in that episode, cheese and Kraken, so great in that episode, some speculation here, but we are limited to speculation about the connection to the Jack Smith case, the, the, the federal case. Could you just kind of walk us through what you think the connection point might be between these flips in the Georgia case, the testimony that may be forthcoming in the Georgia case, and what that does to the federal case? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah. You know, as you say, we don't know anything about this. It's all really speculation. But if you are a defense attorney, you really don't want your client cooperating in one forum only to have that testimony be used against your client in another forum. So if, for example, Kenneth Chesbrough or Sidney Powell, one of these people testifies in Georgia, they are clearly described in the federal indictment as unindicted co-conspirators. You know, they're not named by name, but they're there by description and it's clearly them. And so if they were to testify in Georgia under oath and make admissions about themselves, that testimony could be used against them as admissions in the federal case. And so it really makes sense, even though they haven't been charged yet, certainly it's, there's charges contemplated. I think you would want to reach out to Jack Smith and say, can you offer a deal to my client in the federal system as well? You know, once you've agreed to admit your role, it makes little sense to try to contest it in a different forum. So. It makes me wonder whether there isn't some negotiation going on between these very same defendants and Jack Smith. They could be resolved pre-indictment. It could be that they get a pass in exchange for their testimony, or it could be that they're permitted to plead to something less than what they would be charged with otherwise. You know, there was that reporting yesterday that Mark Meadows was gave immunized testimony, you know, part of a deal. So I don't really know, but it does suggest to me that it would be in the best interest of these clients to work out a deal in the federal system as well as the state system. Yeah, just to quickly touch on this. And again, you may not have had time to even absorb all of this because it's it's coming at it's like everything everywhere all at once. The Mark Meadows testimony, your colleague Joyce Vance tweeted about it. Is she she tweeted something interesting that I'm not sure I fully understood. Well, I'm sure you do. Her her point seemed to be that what emerged about Mark Meadows' testimony, there's a difference between a witness who is being compelled to testify under, under threat, someone who's doing it as part of a, a deal. What, what did you read into the Mark Meadows' testimony based on what you saw? Yeah, so we don't really know. You know, the reporting was that he gave immunized testimony at the grand jury in the federal case. So there are a number of things that could mean. And I think 
she was raising the point, like, don't confuse this with a plea deal. It could be. A uh -huh. plea, but, you know, the people in Georgia have entered a guilty plea to resolve their case and agree to testify voluntarily now against their co-defendants. That's a plea deal. We don't know exactly what this immun immunity deal looks like for Mark Meadows. It could be simply a court order compelling him to testify. And once you get that, if a person does have a realistic threat of criminal exposure, the court will say, you must immunize this person if you're going to compel them to testify. And that's still a very adversarial system where the person is answering your questions, but they're not being forthcoming. They're not, they don't want to be there. It's all through gritted teeth. And I'll tell you if you make me, because my only other option is to go to jail. And so I will answer your questions. It could be that, or it could be that they've worked out something in between, which is a use immunity agreement where I will come in and testify, but you won't use my statements against me. That's kind of an intermediate position. And then the other position, which is pretty rare, is you have given me transactional immunity, which is you agree not to prosecute me as long as I come in and testify truthfully. So it could be anywhere on that spectrum. And we don't really know whether he is cooperating and providing voluntary truthful information or he went in there and, you know, th through his gritted teeth, answered their questions because he was ordered to do so. This is way down in the weeds, but just for my edification, when you mentioned earlier that there would be an understanding between Funny Willis and Powell and Chesborough about you're going to give a preview of your testimony. I assume that that would be under some kind of an arrangement where, okay, I'm going to tell you what I know, but you can't turn around and then prosecute yeah. me based on that. Okay. Because that would seem, boy, that would seem like a trap. Yeah, that's it's called a proffer. And before you sit oh. down, there's an agreement that nothing you say in that session will be used against you. But it is only a proffer. You're sort of proffering up, proffering up. You know, if, if I were to be a witness for you, here is what I could testify to. And so only after hearing all that and assessing it, does the prosecution say, okay, yes, this has value, we will do a deal because we believe you can provide substantial assistance in the conviction of others. There are times, Matt, when the person comes in and tells you things like, you know what, we've already got all that. That's nothing new. So thanks for trying, but no, you know, wow. we'll let you plead guilty. You can always plead guilty. We can't stop you from that, but we're not going to give you any benefit in exchange. And I've had that happen before where, you know, by the time you get to defendant 18 and they say, oh, I want to profit, like, you know what, we know all that. You got nothing new. So you have not added any value. And so we're not going to give you anything in exchange. Listen, it really is the, the prisoner's dilemma in real life. You, mm -hmm, yeah. you really are saying like, get in. You, you, you have such powerful levers to compel cooperation with the legal system as a prosecutor. It's, it, it's quite amazing. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot for something that's totally related, but again, has the nature of, you know, sort of, it's, it's pretty fresh news. I'm not sure how much of the Michael Cohen testimony you watched read about, absorbed after the fact, but Michael Cohen had what he called a heck of a reunion Tuesday with his former boss for whom he was the fixer, Donald Trump, when he testified in the New York civil fraud trial against Trump and with Trump sitting feet away, he described, by the way, Michael Cohen, another one-time lawyer, described that he manipulated Trump's financial statements quote, reverse engineering them to hit an arbitrary net worth. This is part of this financial manipulation that has been alleged, I have to say, seems pretty darn provable for, for Trump to avoid taxes and, and get beneficial treatment from banks, et cetera. Any reactions to that testimony? Yes. So yesterday was certainly a big day for the media. You know, here's 
here's Michael Cohen, the one-time loyal fixer for Donald Trump, who once said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump, now, uh, you know, disloyally testifying against him. And as you said, sitting feet away, facing him, confronting him in court. But you'll notice that his testimony didn't come until like week three of this trial. And that's because prosecutors don't want him to be the star witness. They want to build this case with documents and records. But what Michael Cohen can add here is kind of an explanation for the motive. You know, why was Trump doing all this? And it's because it was this vanity project of being able to tell that he's, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the world, or it was so that he could secure loans or insurance coverage. And so I think it's important testimony, but it's not the only testimony. They've already built all this scaffolding around it because he certainly has baggage. You know, he's been convicted of lying. He's lied before publicly to Donald Trump, about Donald Trump. And so it would be tempting to discount his testimony unless it's corroborated with other evidence. And it is. I also think that in a bench trial like this, as opposed to a jury trial, it's less likely that, you know, the, the fact finder is going to kind of fall for this uh, cross-examination that you're just making this all up to save your own skin. I mean, he went to prison for three years. Mm. And so I think the judge has seen lots of cooperators before and understands how this works and will be able to assess, you know, how this testimony fits into all of the rest of it. So I think the prosecution would say he's not our star witness, but he's just an important um, narrator to connect the dots. You're saying that there's a difference with a jury trial. You might be able to, you know, get into the mind of a juror and sort of impeach the testimony of yeah. a witness by suggesting motives and, and, you know, kind of undermining their character. But with a judge who's been around the block a, a few times, you know, th this is going to be a much more fact based assessment of, of what went on here. Yes. I don't think they're going to, you know, a judge isn't going to be, you know, they, they've just seen this before. And for a, a juror, when you hear about he's just trying to save his own skin, that, that's certainly very compelling. And you might be inclined to just throw everything out that he has to say. But I think a judge will react less emotionally and will instead be looking to the facts. You know, he testified to the following items. Are those backed up by other witnesses or documents? And, and if so, then, you know, then they're believable. And, you know, if, if not, then you take his testimony with a grain of salt. All right. I have to be a culpa myself here that I think I've been sort of holding out on our audience for the two questions that they really care about. Really probably the only things that people care about at the end of the day. So I'm going to ask you those questions in succession here as we get toward the end of the show. One is in totality, when you look at these lawyer flips that we've seen over the last week, the three in the Georgia case, and I guess you, you could throw in the Michael Cohen, if you, if you want, that's a fourth lawyer flip here. What are the biggest sources of legal peril for Donald Trump now that, that we know about? Well, Mark Meadows still lurks out there to me as a very big source of legal peril, just because as the huh. chief of staff, he was in every room. He arranged every meeting. He was on all the phone calls. He knows all the conversations Donald Trump had. So his testimony immunized whether he's cooperating or not. That's really powerful evidence against him. So that strikes me as the most perilous thing. But next to that, I'd say the Kenneth Chesbrough plea is also very powerful as the architect of this fake elector scheme. I think that house of cards falls and that is also perilous for Donald Trump. All right. And now we get to the big one. This is what in a TV court drama we would say, I object calls for speculation. <laughs> I, I like I like TV court dramas. So let's stipulate that. I'm calling for speculation. But based on what we know, 
if you are a member of Donald Trump's legal team or perish the thought you are actually Donald Trump, how panicked are you right now? You know, it's very difficult to get into the head of Donald Trump. He is not like any other person I've ever met in my life. And so, All right. So try his I lawyers. I can't try imagine. His, yeah. The ones who aren't, who aren't part of a plea deal, like the, the existing lawyers who were still not in legal trouble. Yes. I think the charges alone were cause for serious alarm. Both of these indictments are very detailed, and you can see that there is evidence to support all of these allegations. And then now you've got some cooperators that just make the cases even more challenging. You know, they're going to try some legal defenses, but I think Donald Trump's best and only strategy really is delay, delay, delay. If he can get himself elected president, he might be able to pull the plug on the federal cases, and he can at least put off trial in the Georgia case until he's out of office. So if he can win four more years and the evidence grows stale in that time, that's probably his best strategy. But he should be very concerned not only about the latest developments, but about both of these cases. The evidence you know, described in the indictments look very strong. There's, you know, juries can do funny things, so no, no conviction is guaranteed, but he is in very serious legal peril in, in both forums. Barb McQuaid, first of all, if I had it all to do over again, I was thinking of going to law school at a certain point. If I were doing it all over again, I would consider Michigan law based on our conversations together. If you're thinking about it out there, people, you could do a heck of a lot worse than to study under Barb McQuaid. But luckily for the rest of us, you can still find her on NBC, MSNBC, on the Sisters in Law podcast, and of course, here on Beyond Politics. Barb, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much, Matt.